We've been working our way through the 12th chapter of Romans, so let me encourage you to turn there again, Romans chapter 12, and we have spent some time already on verses 9 through 13. We're going to come back to them again this morning, um, but I'd like to read to you verses 1 and 2, just again to provide the context, and then we'll skip down and read verses 9 through 13. So Romans 12, 1 and 2, and then 9 through 13. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Father, as we come and read your word, as we lay our lives beside the standard that it sets, we say as we just we're singing, that we are prone to wander. God, I sense even in my own heart as I've studied this week that uh, the things Paul asks of us are challenging and that we don't always measure up. And so we pray, God, that uh, in the midst of all these challenging uh, commands that you would remind us of the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from all sin, but also remind us of the resurrection of Jesus that does give us new life and power to walk with you, to obey, to fulfill the requirement of your law. And we pray that you would help us to do it as we hear your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, um, I mentioned to you that studying these verses, Romans 12, 9 through 13, is a bit, uh, for me, like putting together a Saturday project list. Not, of course, in relation to their weight or their importance, but these verses are like a Saturday list insofar as that there are quite a number of things on the list. Too many, we said last week, for us to adequately cover in one morning. So we made a start at Paul's list a week ago, and hopefully this morning we're going to check off the remainder of the things that are on it. And let me tell you what I like to do when I have a long project list. I like to group the various items on the list into subsets. I like to do that with sermons too, some of you would say. But in other words, if I have 13 things to do on my list, but I realize that I can't get them all done at once, and yet I want to be as efficient as possible, I may look down the list and go, you know what, five of them are in the kitchen, two of them are in the garage, three more in the bedroom, and then there are three that are in the living room. Instead of spider webbing all around the house going from one to the other, I try to take one room at a time and complete all the projects in that one room. And that's how uh, I've tried to approach these verses, Romans 12, 9 through 13. There are here, as we said last week, uh, 13 items on Paul's spiritual project list, 13 pieces of instruction that he gives us, boom, 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 one right after the other for the Christian life. But if we look at them carefully, I think we can divide them into four rooms, as it were, four categories, four subsets. And we went through one of those rooms last week, noticing that five of these 13 commandments relate directly to how we deal with, how we love one another. Five of these commands are about how Christians relate to one another. 
And then I want you to see that there are three other subsets this morning, three other categories that we can divide these items into. Namely, in verse 9b, that Christians are to be holy. And then in verse 11, that Christians are to be hardy or zealous. And then in verse 12, that Christians are to be hopeful. So we've, we've dealt with one another, and then there are three other categories, holy, hardy, hopeful Christians. And there are eight individual bullet points within those categories, but three categories, and we're going to try to tackle it in that way. Three main ideas this morning. So then, first, there in verse 9b, Paul and the Holy Spirit with him says to us that Christians are to be holy. Verse 9b, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. I think you'll agree that one word that can describe what he says there is holy. That's probably the best word to describe what Paul is asking us to be here at the end of verse 9. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be holy, be pure, be clean, be like Jesus, be holy. That's the point of verse 9b. And notice that Paul gives this exhortation to holiness both in a negative way and in a positive way. There are two sides to the coin of holiness, aren't there? Negatively, holiness means that we abhor what is evil, that we set aside what is evil. Now, abhor is a strong word, isn't it? We don't use that word often in our vocabulary because it's so strong, but we know what it means. To abhor something means to despise it, to detest it, to abominate it. It's even stronger than just to hate something when you abhor it. Now, there is a, a Greek word for hate that Paul could have used, but here in Romans twelve nine, what he does is he uses the word for hate, and then he puts a prefix on it that lets us know what he means is, I want you to strongly hate evil. I want you to hate with passion that which is evil. I want you to hate intensely that which is sinful. It's the only time this word is used in the entire New Testament, as if to signify to us if there's one thing that we're going to hate above all other things, it's going to be evil. So let me just ask you as we read what Paul says there. Do you abhor, do you detest that which is evil? When you see it on the television, when you read about evil things in the news, when evil presents itself on the magazine rack, when you see it in your coworkers or hear it in the jokes that they tell, when you hear it in the lyrics on your iPod, do you abhor what is evil? Indeed, do you abhor what is evil when you find it in your own heart? We read on Wednesday night in Psalm 64 that the inward thoughts and hearts of man are deep. And we said that when, when David wrote that, that our hearts and our inward thoughts are deep, he wasn't giving us a compliment. He wasn't saying our hearts are deep like the ocean and that there are all sorts of uh, unheard of and unseen treasures to be found down there. When he says that the inward thoughts and the heart of man is deep, what he's saying is our hearts, human hearts, are deep like the hole beneath an outhouse. There's all sorts of muck to be found when you go down in there. And even for Christians, what has God done for us? Well, if, if it's the outhouse, God has bulldozed that over and he's cleaned out that septic hole, hasn't he? We're different than we once were. And yet we know that if we dig deep enough into our hearts, into our inward thoughts, into the things that no one else knows about us, we find things inside of ourselves that we ought to detest. If we dig deep enough into the nooks and crannies, we find shameful thoughts and attitudes and so on. And we know that they're there and perhaps we're embarrassed by them, but 
what Paul is asking is, do we actually abhor those things? When we find in us those things that are embarrassing to us, are they more than embarrassing? Do we detest our sin? Now, when Mark and I went to India several years ago, there was filth everywhere. A few others of you perhaps have been there, and you've seen it. There's trash on the roadsides. The roadsides are also where people use the bathroom, number one. And number two, there's animal filth everywhere you go. And it was, to use Paul's word here, abhorrent to us who are not used to such things. But it wasn't abhorrent to the Indians that we were with. The question is, why is that? I think it's just because they're so used to it. They're used to the filth around them and they hardly notice it. Now, given the choice, would they prefer a clean environment like we have? Surely they would. But the thing is, they're not nauseous. They're not disgusted like we were because they're around the filth all the time. And I suspect that that's a good illustration of us modern Christians, if we're not careful. We are surrounded by moral filth all the time, aren't we? You can hardly check your email without there being a half-naked person in the sidebar. You can't watch a ball game without Levi Strauss telling you that submission to authority is bunk and that the gods are waiting to delight in you. I saw that this weekend. You cannot watch the news without seeing some horror story, and not to mention all the bitterness and jealousy and lust and unbelief that we sometimes see in our very own hearts. We're surrounded by a moral cesspool if we look carefully at what we're really seeing. Our world is morally what India is in so far as its hygiene. But because we live in it every day, because this is what we breathe, this filth, at times we hardly notice it. Given the choice now, if someone said you can live in this kind of world or this kind of world, of course we want the pure, clean, moral environment, hopefully as Christians. But because we're used to the stench, we're often not nauseated by it. Now, to be sure, as Christians, I hope we all dislike evil. That's one of the great differences between what we were and what we now are. God has changed us. We once loved our sin, and now we surely don't love it. But Paul is calling us to do more than just dislike evil. He's calling us to absolutely abhor what is evil. And it's a challenging thing. But let's also say from verse 9 that holiness does not just consist in abhorring what is evil. On the positive side, it consists in clinging to what is good. Abhor what is evil, Paul says there, and cling to what is good. That, those are the two sides of the coin of holiness. And again, cling like abhor is a strong word, isn't it? That's a strong word. Clinging is what you do to your child's hand when you're standing on a busy street corner with all sorts of cars going by. Clinging is what you do with the safety bar on the roller coaster at King's Island, right? If you're sane, that's what you do. Clinging is a strong word, isn't it? And Paul is saying that is how tightly... I want you to hold on to what is good. The Holy Spirit, more than that, is saying, this is how tightly I want you to hold on to the things that you know are good and right and true. He says, don't simply approve of good. Don't simply tell others what is good. Don't simply like what is good or want what is good for your children. Paul says, you yourself hold on for dear life to that which you know is good. That's what he's saying here at the end of verse 9. And what does that look like practically? To cling, to hold fast to what is good. Well, it means we hold on for dear life 
for instance, to our Bibles, which, as we said in verse 2, tell us that which is good and acceptable and perfect. We hold on for dear life, verses 3 through 5, to humility. It's good. We hold on for dear life, verses 6 through 8, to our spiritual gifts. We cling to them and use them rather than letting them lie dormant, verses 6 through 8. And last week we said that it's good that we have one another. And so if we're to cling to what is good, we cling to one another and we don't let the blessing of the church slip through our fingers. And we could go on. We cling to integrity in business. We cling to good works as the overflow of our faith. We cling to family devotional times. We cling to our marriages. Doesn't the Bible say it's not good for man to be alone? Conversely, it is good if he finds a wife who fears the Lord. And we cling to our marriages because they're good. We cling to life's, our lives of prayer. We cling to the practice of evangelism. We could go on and on with the list. Paul sums it up elsewhere like this, Philippians 4. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Dwell on these things, Paul says. And here in Romans 12, he says, cling to them. Now, that's why Jesus died, you know. Not only to save us from hell forever, but to make us holy even now. Jesus died not only to free us from sin's penalty, but also to free us from its power, that we could become holy. That's what Paul was on about in that passage we read a couple of weeks ago about marriage, when he says this in Ephesians 5, that Christ gave himself, Ephesians 5, 25, for the church. He loved her, he gave himself for her, so that, verse 26, he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself, the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So I go back to that text that we read two Sundays ago and that we heard at the wedding two weeks ago as well to say Jesus died for the church to make her, Paul says, holy. And here Paul is telling us what it means to be holy. What does it mean? It means that Jesus died not just so that we would dislike what is evil and like what is good. Jesus died not just so that we would frown upon what is evil and dabble in what is good. Jesus died so that we would absolutely abhor what is evil and cling for dear life to what we know is good. That's what it means to be holy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. So that's the first thing that Paul says to us this morning. Christians are to be holy, verse 9. But then secondly, Paul and the Holy Spirit with him says that Christians are to be hardy, verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Paul says the Christian life is a life of hardiness, of zeal, commitment, fervor, Particularly, this relates to how we love one another in verse 10. He says in verse 11, be diligent and fervent because he's just said that we should be loving one another in verse 10. So one of the ways that we should be diligent and fervent is in our love for one another. But verse 11 can also stand on its own, can it? We should be fervent and hearty in every area of the Christian life. And again, I want you to see Paul gives us two sides of the same coin. 
He speaks of hardiness, and he gives us a negative, and he gives us a positive. First, the negative. What does it mean to be hardy in the Christian life, to be zealous? Well, he says not lagging behind in diligence. Maybe your version says not flagging in zeal. Not lagging behind in diligence. Now, let me ask you, why does he say it that way? Why does he put it negatively? Why does he say not lagging behind? Why doesn't he just say be diligent? Why does he put it more strongly? Not only just be diligent, but make sure you don't lag behind in diligence. What is the effect of those words, not lagging behind? The effect is comparison, right? If you're lagging behind something, that means there's something ahead of you. There's something that you're not quite there yet. I think what Paul is doing here is asking us to make a comparison. He's asking us to look at where we know we ought to be in this matter of diligence and zeal. Or maybe he's even saying, I want you to think about where you once were in this matter of diligence and zeal, or maybe even where others around you are, and use those things, Paul is saying, as a yardstick against which to measure your own current level of diligence. What Paul wants you to do is to ask yourself something like this. When I look at how diligently I once served the Lord, or when I look at the zeal of some of my fellow believers, or when I consider how heartily Jesus has served me, Can I say that I'm being as zealous for the Lord as I should be? Or am I lagging behind in diligence? Now that's a sober question, especially when we consider what Jesus has done for us, right? And how thankful we should be because of it. We'll never be as diligent as we should be. That's why Jesus came and died for us, because we fall short. But Paul is asking us to at least consider the question of how far short we fall. Are we pressing ahead in diligence? Are we growing in our diligence to serve the Lord? Or are we lagging behind? Now the flip side of the coin of lagging behind in diligence is, verse 11, B, to be fervent in spirit. Don't lag behind, but on the other hand, he says, be fervent in spirit. The word translated fervent there literally means to boil. I found that helpful. Paul is saying, I want you to bubble up. I want you to boil over with fervor spiritually. So sometime when you're about to boil an egg or about to boil some spaghetti noodles, just pause before you drop your egg or your noodles in the water and just look down into the pan and marvel at all those hundreds of little bubbles popping up everywhere, just continually, never stopping as long as the temperature is what it's supposed to be. It's amazing. That's what Paul says our spirits should look like. Always bubbling up with prayers. Always bubbling up with praises or songs. Always boiling over with encouragement for other people or with scripture that's been previously hidden in our hearts. Our hearts bubbling up, he says, with ideas for how to reach our neighbors or brainstorms for how we might help the church. Bubbling up with love for the nations and so on. That's what a Christian's heart and spirit, Paul says, should look like on the inside. A bubbling cauldron of zeal and enthusiasm for the things of God. Now let me point out that Paul's concern is that we be fervent in spirit. Fervent in spirit. Now that's not to say that we don't need to be fervent in action as well. But simply that fervor begins inside of a person. And that's what he wants. He wants fervor that begins inside and then comes out. Because we can grit our teeth, right, and make ourselves pray. 
We can grit our teeth and make ourselves sing or serve or evangelize or whatever it may be. And sometimes when we're just not feeling it inside, we have to grit our teeth and do what we know we should do regardless. But the ideal, Paul says, is not just that we grit our teeth and get through the Christian life, but that we exhibit fervent actions because they well up from a spirit that is bubbling over for Jesus, that is thrilled with Jesus and glowing for him. Now, let me say, you can't make yourself this way. You can't go home and just say, be fervent, and then all of a sudden your heart just begins to bubble over. So how do you get there? How do you get this bubbling up in your life? The same way you get bubbles in your pot, right? You turn up the heat. Now, how do you turn up the heat on your soul? I think Paul has told us in verse 1, hasn't he? The way that we do these things, the way that we turn up the heat in our souls, the way that we go forward and give our lives in service to the Lord is by recalling, verse 1, the mercies of God. All of the things that he's described in chapters 1 through 11 that Jesus has done for us, laying down his life while we were yet sinners. That's how you turn up the spiritual heat in your life is remembering and meditating on the cross, thinking about how much Jesus paid, how fervently he served you. And when you think about how fervently Jesus served you, your cold heart will begin to melt with love for him and eventually it will boil over and bubble up for Jesus. So Paul urges hearty service to the Lord, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And that final phrase in verse 11, serving the Lord, is is important. On the one hand, it's of course simply a description of the kind of activity that we've already been talking about. Diligence, fervor in serving the Lord. Be diligent, be fervent as you serve the Lord. And we could just leave it at that. It seems obvious. This whole chapter is about serving the Lord. But let us just remember, in noticing the end of verse 11, that it is really the Lord whom we serve. He doesn't say be diligent and fervent, first of all, in serving one another. He tells us to serve one another. But here, it's diligent and fervent. Why? Because you're serving the Lord. That's why we should be diligent. Yes, we are serving one another, verse 10, but ultimately, even when we're serving one another in verse 10, we're serving the Lord in verse 11. So if we were only serving each other, it might seem okay to us to occasionally not be as fervent as we should be, because after all, you know, everybody struggles sometimes. But if we're serving the Lord, it's a whole different thing, isn't it? So if we're only serving one another... Let's say if I'm only serving you this morning with this sermon, it's okay if I'm only scantily prepared. Because it's you and you guys are like me. You, you sometimes you know, struggle to be prepared or whatever, and so it's okay. But if I'm serving the Lord, it doesn't matter if there's three people or 3,000 people. It doesn't matter what you expect of me or how much you love me and will put up with me not doing well. If, if I'm serving the Lord, then I'm going to do my best. Regardless, because it's him. And we could say that about all sorts of things. If we're only serving the visitors to our church, it might be okay if we lag behind a little bit in friendliness here and there. But not if we're serving the Lord. If we're only serving the rest of the congregation, it might, it might be understandable if we did the work project only to about 80% standards, but we're serving the Lord. If we're only serving the people in the pews around us, it's okay to sing sort of half-heartedly. But we're actually singing for the Lord, aren't we? If we were only serving our children, 
It would be okay to just read the Bible to them now and again, but we're serving the Lord when we read the Bible to them. If we're only serving our neighbors, it might be understandable if we had a decent but not an excellent testimony before them. But our testimony is not just for our neighbors, it's for the Lord. If we were only serving the missionaries, it would be fine to pray for them intermittently. But when we pray for our missionaries, we're not just serving them, we're serving the Lord. And if we were only serving ourselves spiritually, it might be normal for us just to sort of do spiritual things here and there, pray when it comes to me to pray, read my Bible now and again, come to worship when it strikes me. But we know that we're doing these things not just for our own souls. We are doing them for our own souls, but we're doing these things for the Lord. You see what Paul is saying? If we're only serving people, it would be understandable if we lag behind every now and again, if we were a little lackluster in our zeal, because people would understand. I mean, we all struggle at times, but we're not doing these things, Paul says, first of all, for other people. We're serving the Lord. And so as Paul puts it in Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Or, as he says here in verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So then, Christians are to be holy people, they're to be hardy people, zealous people, fervent people. And finally, Paul and the Holy Spirit with him says that Christians are to be hopeful. Hopeful. Notice verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Now, all those things are connected to hope, but just notice the first clause, first of all, rejoicing in hope. We're to be hopeful people. This is one of the great features of the Christian life. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not often that our lives are easier or that we have it better or that we're more wealthy or prosperous than others or that we're healthier than others. It's that whatever we're facing, we have hope. We have hope because we know that God answers prayer. Because we know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. We have hope because we know that God really does work all things together for good to those who love him. We have hope because we know that our sins are forgiven and our eternity is assured. We have hope because we know that if God didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And of course, there is in the New Testament what's called the blessed hope. The fact that the Son of Man will return with a shout, with the trumpet of God, and he will make all things new. Everything that is wrong with the world today, whether it be our own sins or the sins of other people against us or the effects of sin, which the Bible calls the curse, the thorns and the thistles and cancer and forest fires and floods and miscarriages and funerals and airplanes going into buildings and disappointments of every kind. All of these things that are wrong with the world now when Christ comes will be made new. We're told this in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. John writing says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. 
There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face. All of that when Jesus returns. It's no wonder that Paul, in other passages, calls the return of Jesus the blessed hope. And here in Romans 12, 12, he, 12, 12, he tells us we should be rejoicing in this hope. Remembering that God really does work all things together for the good of his people, often in the here and now, and remembering that in the there and then, he will make all things new. So that if Romans 8, 28 doesn't seem to come true for you now, just wait until Jesus returns. We really can, as James taught us, rejoice when we face trials of many kinds. We have hope, verse 12a, and we have it in the midst of our tribulation. And therefore, in the middle of the verse, we should surely also persevere in the midst of our tribulation. Hope brings about perseverance. In other words, if you don't have hope that God hears your prayers, if you don't have hope that God works all things together for good for his people, if you don't have hope that there's a life beyond this life, if you don't have hope that Jesus will make all things new, the tribulations of various kinds that you will face in this world will quite likely knock you flat. Everyone who lives any length of time in this world faces tribulation. Sorrows, Losses, disappointments, emotional wounds, financial hits, sicknesses, setbacks, natural disasters, and so on. It's simply part of life in this world, isn't it? So the question is not are we going to suffer. The question is how are we going to deal with our tribulation? How are we going to deal with these setbacks? Are we going to persevere or are we going to do something else? Now some people are completely capsized by life's trials, aren't they? You've known people like this. It's sad. People who face something that they just cannot face and they either break down or they commit suicide. More people than that simply become jaded by life's trials. It's kind of like, and I don't mean this in a funny way, but it's the best illustration I could come up with, like that game at the Chuck E. Cheese, the whack-a-mole game. Some people... Life's trials have hit them on the head and beat them back down into their hole so many times that they're just not able to come back up again. And so they live their life with no more hopes and no more dreams and just continual pessimism and waiting until they die. Most Americans, I would say, handle their tribulations, their sorrows, life's harsh realities like this. Not by despairing, not by becoming jaded, but just by putting those things out of their minds with the use of hobbies and possessions and vacations and food and drink and so on. So we don't talk about death. We don't talk about our problems. We just bring something into our life that will make us feel better and forget about it. That's where most Americans would fit, I think. And therefore, we are proof in this country that it is possible to cope with tribulation without God. It is possible for people to cope with their afflictions and not to drown in despair or become jaded or lose their minds. But only those who have the hope of heaven and the hope of the new heavens and the new earth can do more than cope. Only those who have real hope in Christ can actually handle their trials head on and, as Paul says here, persevere through them. 
And that's what Paul calls us to, persevering in tribulation. Not just surviving by drowning our trials in a sea of busyness and activity, but being able to take the very real blows that come at us. And they are blows, but to keep going because we have an assured hope. So one of the fruits of hope, one of the upshots of believing Romans 8.28 and Romans 8.32, one of the upshots of having eternal life and knowing that the new heavens and the new earth will be your dwelling place is that a person is able to be dealt sometimes the severest of blows in this life and not lose heart. And don't you want to be the kind of person who doesn't lose heart? Don't you want to be the person who perseveres through tribulation? If so, then your hope must not be in your circumstances or in other people or in your own ability to work things out. Your hope must be in the fact that there is a God who is in heaven who can work even the most difficult things together for the good of his people and who is coming soon and who says, Behold, I make all things new. Hope in the sovereignty of God and in the coming of Jesus results in perseverance. And then notice at the end of the verse, this kind of hope also results in men and women who are devoted to prayer. Prayer is a fruit of hope. Think about it. How does hopelessness talk? Like this. Well, it's no use praying about this. I've tried praying about it many times before, and God hasn't seemed to answer. I don't know why he hasn't answered, but there's no use in me keeping on. I'm just going to give up. It's just the way my life is. I'm one of those people who just never seems to be able to catch the wind coming in the right direction. I don't doubt that many of us have heard ourselves talking like that. Maybe even some of you this very week. Hopelessness leads to prayerlessness. What we need sometimes is a good dose of real, good old-fashioned, biblical hope. Hope speaks like this. No, God doesn't seem to have answered my prayer. Yet, but he always comes through and he wouldn't give me his most precious and costly gift, namely his son, and then withhold something from me that cost him far less than to give me Jesus. So I'm just going to keep praying. I'm going to stay devoted to prayer because I have hope that my God will hear. And if not here, then over there, he will deliver me and make all things new. Some of us need that word. Maybe regarding a wayward child, maybe regarding a broken relationship or a financial stress, some sin habit that you can't kick, some emotional wound that won't seem to go away, some physical problem, whatever it is. We may need that word. We may need to be able to say to ourselves, God hasn't answered me yet, but he always does. He's given me Jesus. He's given me the most precious thing he could give me. And so I know he's not stingy. I know he's not going to withhold anything else that I'll need. And so I'm going to keep praying. I'm going to stay, verse 12, devoted to prayer. And if you do that, I can't tell you precisely when or how God will answer your prayer. But I know this. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. When Jesus comes again, every prayer that you have ever prayed in faith, will be answered in God's perfect way and timing. And it is that hope, verse 12a, that keeps us both persevering in tribulation, verse 12b, 
and devoted to prayer in verse 12c. It is that kind of hope that makes us want to be holy, verse 9, when Jesus arrives. It's that kind of hope that urges us to do our work heartily as for God and not for men, not lagging behind in diligence, verse 11, but fervent in spirit. Because if we hope for Jesus to come, then we know that when he comes, he'll reward us for all of our fervor and diligence. Hope is so important to the Christian life. It's what keeps us going. And so Paul says, and we conclude with this morning, let us live our lives now and all the way until Jesus comes, rejoicing in hope. Father, thank you for this good word from the Apostle All of these instructions, God, related to holiness and hardiness and hope. God, I pray that you would challenge us to abhor what is evil, to cling to what is good. I pray that you would move us not to lag behind in diligence, but to be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. And I pray that you would help us to rejoice in hope and to persevere in tribulation and to be devoted to prayer. All for Jesus' sake and all remembering that as often as we lag behind, as often as we fail, that if anyone sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's given his life as a sacrifice for our sins. We thank you for him and we pray in his name. Amen.